There we go. Okay, okay, okay. You all well? Guys, this is my third service today, so please pray for me. Um, this could come out like anything, I don't know. Uh, let's do that now. Why don't we take a moment and we're about to read from the Bible. This is God's Word. We believe when we read from this, we, we, we literally experience and encounter and hear God's words to us in our day, in our moment. That's what we believe. So why don't we take a moment and just pray, compose yourself and pray and just invite God to speak to you. And now picture the people who are sitting around you and just name them before God and ask that that God in his kindness will just speak so clearly to each one of them. And then, church, will you pray for me? And pray that you will hear nothing that I say and only what God says in the next half hour. Father, hide me behind the cross so that all we see tonight is Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill this place now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to read a really short passage. It's on the screen, it's in your Bible, it's probably on your phones too. It's Mark chapter 12, reading from verse 41. It's a really familiar piece, but as we read this, I want you to listen, but I also want you to to try and imagine what it was like. Put yourself into this story, somewhere in this story, and try and imagine what this is like. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowds putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. This is God's Word. Father, thank you for it today. So I have one sister, and I have a niece and a nephew. My my niece, Skye, is seven, seven years old, and my sister was telling me this week that she went into Skye's bedroom to wake her up one morning, and Skye was being a bit coy, a bit, you know that thing your kids, your grandkids do when they've done something wrong and they know they're about to be found out, but they're trying to deny that it's happened? Do you know that thing? Yeah, that we look at having their face. She was being all coy. She was in bed, and the sheets were pulled up, and she was being all coy. And my sister, what's wrong? And she pulled the sheets back, 
And the bed was covered in all these little bits of white plastic. What on earth? And started to explore and figure out what had happened. And, and, and what she had done, my niece Sky had gotten her, her toy dinosaur and pulled all the teeth out and put them under her pillow in the hope that the tooth fairy would bring her money because she knew Christmas was coming and she fancied buying some new stuff. Genius. Genius. What a cool niece I have. <laughs> Guys, tonight I want to talk about money. Uh, and I'm deeply aware that for a minister talking to a congregation about money, there are few things that make you squirm more in your seat. I, I could name one or two, but I'm not going to. Um, but but it, it's an uncomfortable conversation. We don't like talking about money. Let, let me say a couple of things before we get into this. The first thing that's really important for me to say and for you to understand, is that neither my nor Gary's salary is tied to what you put in the offering plate. If you give less, if you give more, it doesn't affect our salary, which gives us real freedom to talk about it because we have no vested interest. It's not like preaching a good sermon gets me a pay raise. That doesn't work that way. Thank goodness. <laughs> Second thing I want to say as a caveat to this talk, this teach, is I'm talking to myself. There is nothing I'm about to say that I don't look in the mirror and feel it painfully reflecting on me. So I'm talking to myself, and if some of it is relevant to what God's saying to you, then amen. But I'm talking to myself. Third thing, Jesus talked about money more than he talked about anything else. Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, John's gospel, even how, how Paul and, and the other apostles recount Jesus' ministry, money and finance are significant, significant parts of it. Because they want us to get it right. Jesus wants us to get this right. And, and then the fourth thing, fourth thing, just really simply, is we are coming into this teaching and this sermon, this, this conversation in a really exciting place. Who was at Reactivate weekend? Yeah? Well done. Excellent. It was a, a big celebration we had about a month ago in church. And, and part of that that weekend, we brought an offering. We asked people to, to pray and to bring a sacrificial gift and offering to this church, to this house. And over the course of the weekend, the, the gift was brought, with gift aid included, was over £106,000, which is, is staggering. It's an incredible amount of money. Uh, so, as I come to talk about this, I'm conscious we're talking about a really, into a really healthy place. I'm not barraging the congregation to give more. I'm, say, I'm affirming and saying, this is a really exciting moment for us as a congregation. And my question is, how do we, we turn a moment into a movement? How do we take a one-off moment in time and make it a mindset that shapes everything we do? So tonight, as we look at this passage and around this passage at other parts of the Bible, I, I want to teach, I guess, hang it on three areas. I don't always give you the headings beforehand, but let me give you the three headings so you can frame where it's all going. I want to talk about a, a perspective of generosity, because sometimes we need to change the way we think and the way we see this. So uh, a perspective of generosity. And then I want to talk about a culture 
of generosity. And then finally, I want to talk about a practice of generosity. Okay? That's where it's going tonight. It's going to end up very practical. So first of all, a perspective of generosity. We look at this story set in the temple. And Jesus, this is weird. Like You've got to get that this is weird. You would be uncomfortable with this. I would be uncomfortable with this. Jesus sits down like this, watching the plate, and then invites people to come. Well, he doesn't invite them. People are coming to put their gift in the plate. It's not a plate. It's actually a, like a trumpet-shaped bowl. Um, but Jesus sits down watching what people... Like, what would you do if I sat and watched what you give on a... It'd be weird, wouldn't it? be weird. I have really bad news for you. Jesus knows what you give. Just saying, just throwing it out there. He knows what you put in the offering plate or what your direct debit is. I have no idea. I don't need to know. I don't want to know. But Jesus sits down and he sits down and he watches as people come and put their gift in the temple treasury. And he says some of the rich people come and bring significantly large gifts. But this one lady and we're told twice that she is a poor widow. And those are two very carefully chosen words to, to articulate her, her economic stance, her, her financial place in life. Her husband has died. She has no way of making a living by herself. There's no benefit system. She is totally, totally at the mercy of the church. She is poor. It's reinforced in that word. And she comes with nothing. She's in poverty. And she comes, and we're told she puts two thin copper coins. They're called leptons. It's a tiny, tiny, there's a little picture of, of kind of like a manufactured version of them up there. They're tiny, tiny copper coins. Lepton literally means a thin one. They, they're worth less than a penny. That gives you a sense of it. And she drops these two coins into the plate. And that is such a significant thing that Jesus calls all of his disciples over and says, see that? That's what it's about. That's what it's about. It's not enough money to, to buy a new pew Bible. It's not enough money to, to sponsor a missionary. It's not enough money to pay off a debt in a building. So insignificant. It's like, you know, how often have you walked past a penny lying on the ground and not picked it up? It was such a small, insignificant gift. And Jesus said, That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Because I, I think for Jesus, giving is not measured by the count, but by the cost. For Jesus, giving is not measured by what is given but by what is kept. And that's why he says to his disciples, they all give out of their wealth. Yeah, it was a big offering, but it didn't cost them a whole lot. Where she gave out of her poverty, and actually she gave all that she had. She gave everything she had. And as I read that, that makes me uncomfortable. It's got to make you uncomfortable too, let's be honest. What motivates her to give like that? 
Because we don't often give like that, let's be honest. Maybe some of us did at Reactivate 10. We, we give something that, that meant we had to sacrifice something else. But we don't always give like that. Sometimes we give and, and we just give kind of routinely without thinking, you know, I've always put that much in my envelope. I just put it in. I just, I've been given the same direct debit for the last 10 years. I just, I've never thought about it again since. We don't think about it. Or maybe we do think about it and the conversation in our heads is a little bit like this. We don't like to admit this, but it's a little bit like this. How much do I have to give to appease my conscience so I can go and buy that thing? I've had that conversation with myself. Have you? What motivates this lady to give like that? I think that's what Jesus is trying to teach us in in, in this story. I, I think it's what Mark is trying to show us in, in this whole chapter because th- these words about this story about the widow and her offering comes at the end of Mark chapter 12, but at the very start of Mark chapter 12 is another story about an, an owner who owns a vineyard. And any time a vineyard is mentioned to, to Jewish people, they're automatically thinking, this is talking about us, this is talking about Israel, this is talking about God's people. And, and the owner of the vineyard goes away. And he says to, he puts tenants in and says, I want you to steward the land for me. At some point, I'm going to come back and claim what is mine. But as you read that parable, what happens is the tenants forget that there's an owner and they think that all the resources of the vineyard actually belongs to them. They lose perspective on what's meant to happen. And there's a thread running through Scripture that's meant to give us that perspective. The psalmist in in Psalm 24 says, "The, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and some things in it. The earth is the Lord's, but the things in my wallet belong to me. Or the whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it belongs to Him. That's different, isn't it? That's different than how we think. It's different than how we live. Go right back to the very first thing we see at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, where God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And then he created people, and he created people in his image, man and woman in his image. And he put them in the garden And he said, all of this I give to you. Now, steward it well. Everything that's here I put in your hands, I want you to bring life to it in the way that I bring life to it. I want you to steward these things that I've put in your hands the way I would do if if they were mine. The most famous verse in the Bible the one we love to graffiti everywhere in Northern Ireland, John three sixteen. You ever notice that? Painted on rocks and lampposts and everything else. For God so loved the world that he, come on church, gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Thank you, Mr. McWilliams and my P5 Sunday school class. That's still in there. Um, 
What if that verse reveals not only the mission of God, but also the very nature of God? God gave. God gave. God gave. Do you see that thread running throughout? That perspective shift on where we currently are? What if everything that I own actually belongs to God? And I mean everything. What if everything that I own actually belongs to God? What if it has been put into my hands with the purpose of bringing life to other people and bringing hope to other people? What if generosity is actually one of the best reflections of our sanctification? What if generosity actually reveals how much of the the divine nature and the divine purpose is being worked out in us? How much we're becoming like Jesus and how much we're holding back ourselves? What if it's not actually our money? I think that's the perspective this lady in the story had, which enabled her to give the way she gave. I told you it mightn't be comfortable tonight, sorry. But I do think we need a change in perspective around generosity. The other thing we need to see is is, is a culture of generosity rising up from within our churches that, that begins to shape our nation. There are two um, cultural narratives. There are two storylines being worked out at the minutes across the UK and across Northern Ireland. And they're so dominant, they're actually shaping not just what's going on out there, they're actually shaping attitudes in here as well. First one's about Brexit. Haven't seen the news today. Don't know how things have went in Brussels today. I'm intrigued to hear when I get home tonight. But for the past couple of years, there hasn't been a news cycle that hasn't been talking about Brexit. Yeah? And we all have our own ideas about it, but a lot of the conversations about Brexit are tied up around around money and economics and wealth. What is going to be best for us? Brian, it was lovely to hear you challenging that attitude a little bit in your prayers this morning. But a lot of that conversation is tied up with what's going to be best for, for me and mine and us and ours. And it's tied up around immigration, which is a question about people coming into this country and using the resources that could be better spent on us. And it's tied up around borders and tariffs and, and, and how much we can sell, the maximum amount we can sell our goods for and the cheapest we can bring other goods in for. Because that's what the arguments about Brexit are all about. And many of us inside the church start the conversation from the same place. Hold that in your head for a second. Because the, the other narrative, the other story that's been playing out at the minutes is Christmas. Any Christmas fans? 
Look what I've just spied here. Somebody's put this here for badness. Look at that. Along with a naughty or nice envelope. This is actually mine. I, I put this in the art cafe during the week. I'm a total Christmas fan. I love Christmas. So do my, my kids have their Christmas letters written already. Uh, that's really just to stop them changing their minds. Good advice. So it is. But Christmas is, is a dominant conversation that's going on at the minute in, in our society, both outside and inside the church. And in actual fact, not just in our, it, it, it's affecting our thinking, it's affecting our conversations, it's affecting our spending. And I worry that there is no difference than, than what people in the church, Christians, followers of Jesus, do and think financially around Christmas than those outside the church do. And I worry that the whole thing has been driven by Coca-Cola and marketers and Facebook. And it's a cycle of consumerism that's, that's robbing us of our imaginations. There's a culture of entitlement and a culture of greed that has taken Christmas hostage And we're not doing anything different about it in the church. And it scares me. We're being shaped by it. I remember um, when I was a kid, used to get up early on a Saturday morning, get your breakfast, go to the living room, sit down, and at 10 to 6, the TV was going, and that funny multicolored picture was on it. Do you remember it? And at 6 o'clock, what happened? Cartoons! came on at six o'clock and they came on for two or three hours. And, and that was your cartoon fix for the day because you didn't have Netflix and TV on demand. You only got your cartoons in that little, and you had to be there to watch it. But even back then, every 15, 20 minutes, there was an advertisement when the latest BMX bicycle that I needed to get to make me happy was marketed at me. And the latest He-Man figure and the latest whatever was being advertised and marketed and pushed into the living room of this little six, seven-year-old boy watching cartoons. Do you know what? It's got worse. The other day, I was looking. I went on my phone, and I searched for Argos, and I looked for a new set of headphones in Argos. Two days later, when I was scrolling through Facebook, do you know what popped up on Facebook in the banner ads? Seven or eight different sets of headphones. Marketing is getting more aggressive. It's pushing things at us more and more and more. And it's pushing things at our young people more and more and more. This cycle of consumerism that equals happiness. Consumerism that equals happiness. And we all, all of us, have found ourselves on this rotation of work, watch, spend, repeat. Work watch, spend, repeat. Work, watch, spend, repeat. Church, our imaginations have been taken captive by a culture of consumerism. And we struggle to think about it any differently. 
And that's why we, we need to hear stories. We need to hear stories. We need to hear stories about poor widows who go to the temple and empty their pockets and give everything they have because we need to know that that can be normal. We need to hear stories about missionaries like Sarah Jane Box who, who who gave up everything and moved to Athens. She was speaking on this stage a couple of weeks ago, moved to Athens to work with refugees that are pouring into the country there. So that they release something different in our imaginations of what normal can be. We need to hear stories like, like the last church I worked in, a lady came to me, she owned her own business. She came to me and said, Gareth, we've had a pretty good year this year. You know, it wasn't a big, it was small business, but we've had a good year this year. And I want to give you this envelope full of cash. I'm thinking, yes, consumerism. She goes, I, I want you to think of some families in our church who are really struggling. And I want you to go and give them this, some of this money and bless them and don't ever tell them where it came from. Isn't that, a, that was the best part of my Christmas, getting to go and give these gifts out to people and bless people. And that couple hundred quid made such a difference. We need to hear stories about radical generosity that can awaken our imaginations and release our hearts. Why? Because we need to become more like Jesus. And Jesus gave everything he had. Guys, what if the questions that we should be asking about Brexit are not about me and mine, but are about how do we love the stranger? Isn't that a theme that runs throughout the Bible? How do we love the people that are turning up on our shores who, who arrive with nothing? What does it look like to love them, to call them family? The questions we should be asking around Brexit are, you know, Jesus said, go to, to all the nations and make disciples. Now we're in a situation where we've all the nations wanting to come to us. How do we make disciples? Nobody's asking that question. Guys, the questions we should be asking are, 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 are not, how can government get a better deal to help small business? The questions we should be asking is, how can I shop local to help small business? How can I inconvenience myself to bless somebody else? And with Christmas, what if, what if the purpose of giving our children gifts at Christmas time is not actually to show them that they have to get stuff to feel loved? And I'm talking as a dad here. And what if it's not actually to teach them that because their mate got an iPod, they have to get an iPod too, because you've got to keep up with your mates, otherwise you're not cool. Do we want to cultivate that in our kids? Don't we suffer enough from that ourselves? What if the purpose of giving our children gifts at Christmas time is to show them what generosity looks like and to teach them that it's better to give than receive. And rather than, than I'm not saying don't buy your kids gifts, but, but rather than simply giving them gifts, talk to them about how they can bless other people at Christmas time. What can they give out of who they are and what they have? You see, the Apostle Paul 
in the book of Romans, he said, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then, only then, will you know what God's will actually is. And I think with regards to finance and, and, and money, we are too much conformed to the pattern of this world. But dream with me for a second. And, and, and this is crazy, but dream with me for a second. What could it look like to allow God's Word to shape my thinking and your thinking and our thinking around money and around spending and around generosity? And and what could it look like to allow both God's Word and God's Holy Spirit to shape not only my thinking but how my family processes money and shares gifts and does all those things. What, what could that look like? And what, what could it look like if, if not just one and two families, but, but dozens and dozens of families started to really get this and allow God's Word to shape how they did family, and, and churches started to sh- allow God's Word to shape how they process money and spending and generosity. And all of a sudden, you have thousands and thousands of people in this little country of ours coming together to practice radical generosity, believing that it literally is better to give than to receive. All of a sudden, it doesn't just affect the church, and we're not just trying to resist the pull of society. All of a sudden, we're rising up and starting to say to society, this is a better way to live. We start to rewrite the story over our city. A story of generosity. That at the very center of it, it's not actually about money. Money's just a vehicle. At the very center of it, we say because we believe in a God who gave his only son for you and for me. And then finally, to land this whole thing, a practice of generosity. Because it's all very well having a theological shift. And it's all very well having good intentions, but it's really hard to to change how we've been doing life for me for 39 years, for you, maybe less, maybe more. It's very hard to do that. Philip O'Lally is a psychology researcher at the University College in London, and, and, and she's done research there with her team into um, how habits form and how long it takes to form a habit. And, and she's done different studies on it, but um, what, what her research shows is that for different people in different circumstances, the answer is different. It can take between two and eight months but on average, 66 days to form a new habit, to move from from a good intention to a changed rhythm. It takes 66 days on average. For generosity to go from being an idea idea we talk about in church to, to a rhythm, a lifestyle that affects every part of us, 66 days on average. How do we go about it? Let me give you three. Let me throw three things at you, and then we're going to bring this to a close. 
First one, be worshipful. Be worshipful. As we, we sing, as we've been doing tonight, as we open our Bibles and read, as we get up in the morning and pray, what happens? We turn our eyes to Jesus. We turn our gaze to Jesus. We make Him our focus. And as we worship, both individually and corporately, as we gaze upon Jesus, He begins to form His heart within us. We start to become like the one who gave everything for us. That's what sanctification is. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, making us more like Jesus. And it happens when, when we worship, when we open the Bible, when we spend time in His presence, when we pray. It's not a quick fix. It's a lifestyle. Be worshipful. Gaze upon Jesus, and He starts to reset things in your heart that He starts to release generosity in you. Why? Because he's generous. It's who he is. Be intentional. Be worshipful. Be intentional. There is a place for reactive giving. There's no question about that. There's a place for walking through Belfast City Center and, and seeing a homeless person sitting and just feeling the Holy Spirit stir your heart and God say, go and help that person. Forget about your posh lunch in the apartment. Go buy two sandwiches, two cups of coffee, and sit down beside them and ask them their name. Give them the tenor that you're going to spend your lunch in the, in the nice place. There's a place for responsive, reactive giving. Of course there is. There's a place for, for hearing a, a missionary speak on this stage and going home and writing a check because you felt so convicted about it. There's a place for that. But over and above that, the common thread running throughout the Bible is of prayerful, intentional, habitual giving. The Bible starts the conversation at 10%. The Old Testament is called tithing. And there's loads of Bible verses. Leviticus 27 says, every tithe of the land is the Lord's. There's loads of of commands in Scripture to say, let's start the conversation there. What that means is, when you get your paycheck in, look at what you're planning to give. Look how much you've got paid. Have a look what 10% of that might look like. Be realistic. Can you afford to live if you give 10% away? Some of you can't. So look at 5%, look at 4%, look at 3%. Don't just do what you've always done and throw what you've always thrown into the plate. Make a prayerful, intentional choice decision. I also think for some people, 10% is too small. And God's actually calling you to give more in a routine, habitual way. Jesus doesn't put a 10% figure on it. He says, give joyfully. But equally, he doesn't contradict the 10% either. I think it's a good place to start the conversation. I'm not saying you all should give 10%, but I'm saying you should all go home and at some point this week look at what comes in and make a prayerful, intentional decision of what you can afford to give and then make it a routine. Make it a rhythm. One of the best things, and this isn't 
I haven't got a verse for this, but I do feel it's biblical. One of the best pieces of advice I was ever given was by an older Christian who said to me, live by 10, 10, 80. 10, 10, 80. When you get your pay in, learn what it looks like to give away 10%, to put 10% into savings. We're called to live wisely. And then to live off 80%. And I don't always get it right, but I, I try to live by that. And I think it's a really practical, really wise place to aim to get to. But it's not easy to get there, guys. And the final thing, be worshipful, be intentional, be secretive. Be secretive about it. Even generosity has been taken captive by consumerism. Sounds weird, doesn't it? Let me tell you. Somebody you weren't expecting comes and gives you a Christmas present this year. You're not thinking, oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much for blessing me. You're thinking, oh, no, I have to buy them a gift now as well. Somebody on the back of the sermon I preached two weeks ago invites you around for dinner. The first thing you're thinking is, when can I have them back round? Generosity has become contractual in our society. We've created an obligation around giving. It's become consumerism. What we see with this widow in the story, she didn't advert. Jesus was being nosy and, and saw what she gave. She came and gave her gift secretly. In actual fact, when Jesus talks about giving elsewhere, he says, when you give, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is giving. Give it secretly so you don't become proud, so you don't become conceited. When I was studying for ministry, when we had Karis and Archie at that stage, and Archie was really unwell, and we were having to find money to fly him back and forward to Great Ormond Street. Laurel wasn't working. I was on a student grant. Uh, we, we, we didn't have much. We came home one day to find an envelope through the door with 500 pounds cash in it. It was incredible. It allowed us to, to go over with Archie, both of us to go over with Archie and stay in London with him while he was over there having treatment. But, the, but the, we didn't know who to thank. It was horrible. I wanted to pay them back. At least thank them. But I couldn't because they'd given secret. And all I could do was turn to God and say, Father, thank you for blessing me in this way. And at different times since that, when I've had the opportunity to, to bless someone in secret, I can pay it forward. Secret giving breaks the cycle of obligation and begins to create a culture of generosity that I promise you is addictive and is contagious as you bless other people and all they can do is turn to God and say thank you. Something awakens within their heart where they look to bless others as well. I'd love to pray. It's quarter, almost quarter past eight. Let's pray.
Father, for some of us tonight, simply come by your Spirit and reset our hearts so we can see that you are a good Father who loves to give good gifts to your children. That you're a good Father who who wants to, to give us grace, to give us forgiveness, to give us new life, to give us new starts. Because for some people here, their perception of you, God, is of an angry judge. Come, Holy Spirit, and, and recalibrate hearts so we can see you as the graceful, good Father. Father, there's been a lot of words tonight and and, and some of them, I guess, are mine and allow them to fall. But what's of you? Land in hearts and awaken imagination and awaken habits and rhythms of generosity for our whole families, for our whole culture. And your word tells us that that generosity is actually a spiritual gift. So I pray, Holy Spirit, come and on, on some individuals tonight, release the gift of generosity. And Father, finally, for those who are here tonight and are, and are struggling financially and and a lot of this teaching has just been really hard to hear. Father, draw alongside them and, and enable over these next days other people to draw alongside them who can, in really practical ways, walk with them and help them to walk out of this place of financial brokenness and debt into a place of freedom and joy. Help them to know you're not angry with them, Lord, that you, that you love them and you have something better for them. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.